Welcome to the podcast. This is episode one of Church Chat. I've done a little study to help give language to deepen our discussion uh, for this coming Sunday. We're having a barbecue at the camp here for the young adults. Please message me if you want more info. But I'd invite you to consider what I've prepared and gather your own information. There's a much longer podcast series by The Bible Project, which is great stuff. I stole half their information for this, uh, but it's linked in the show notes. Maybe search the Bible app for the word soul and have a read through some of the passages uh, and just consider what does it mean to have a soul. But right now, let's ask the Holy Spirit to guide us into deeper truth, a clearer understanding of who he is and how he made us. So I think this question of what a soul is, is really a question of who or what are we? We were saying last week that a little kid asked this question, mostly trying to understand who we are and what happens to us when we die. These are some of life's biggest questions. So a classic theological definition is uh, to divide things into parts, and it's uh, where we get the word dichotomy and trichotomy. So otomy is a Greek word for cutting, and di is two, tri is three. So how many cuts do we make? Everybody assumes we have a body. Easy enough. You know, We all get that. To discuss whether or not we have a body seems a little silly. Um, but a dichotomy is body and soul. There's what you see, and then there's also what makes you you. Uh, that's the soul. And that's why you're not less human if you lose an arm. It's because your soul is still there, and that's what makes you human. That's the dichotomy definition. Uh, there's also the trichotomy definition that you have a body, obviously. You also have a soul, which is your mind, will, emotions. And there's your spirit, is what Jesus saves. It's what makes us more than animals. Uh, maybe this is the image of God. Um, so we assume that we're more than one part, I think, because if we were just bodies, all you'd need to bring a dead body back is a little bit of lightning, like Frankenstein, right? And we kind of get that there's something more to life than flesh and blood. That's why you can't just uh, use machinery to stimulate heart and lungs after someone has died. Um, now, both of these definitions are classics and they're helpful, but they're not, they're not quite it. Uh, the Bible talks about humanity both ways, and neither really seems to line up with either understanding. So let's dive into the mud here. There's this idea of soul, and it's a very old idea. The English word idea is probably from 8th century, and Beowulf is the first time we see it written down. Uh, and a really classic definition of what a soul is in English is your mind, will, and emotions. It's what you think, it's what you decide, it's what you feel. Uh, I don't know who decided that's the order. It's not emotions, mind, and will. I, I don't know, but it seems to roll nice. That's a very normal English definition. I don't know if it's true. So what's a spirit then? Is that what the Holy Spirit talks to? Hmm. So before we get too far, let's check our assumptions. Uh, we should be able to answer why we think whatever we think. It's okay if we don't know yet, but it's very important that we, we really search out the why behind what we believe. We've inherited a ton of cultural understandings from our parents and our teachers, our peers, our neighborhoods, our education and job. And if we don't know these uh, assumptions we make, we can end up at the wrong place. 
So God wanted to communicate with us, with humanity. So he picked a guy. You've got to start somewhere. He picked Abe, Abraham. And it didn't really work according to plan, but he stuck with it. They spoke a different language than us. They have a different culture than us. They have different values. But then Galatians 4, 7 said, In the fullness of time, God sent his son. Well, it's to a time and a place. Uh, God didn't want to send. He decided not to, to send Jesus to every single person in every time ever. He sent Jesus to a time and a place. And that time and place is very unlike Canada. It's similar enough in many ways. There's still people on earth, but their words aren't our words. Their ideas aren't our ideas, and their values aren't our values. Every culture has a unique take on purpose and on value, and it has things they just assume you understand. Uh, we all use insider language. It's too tedious to express everything explicitly. So we develop shortcuts, and we just all assume, well, you're Canadian, so you know what this is, and we, we don't take the time to explain it, which makes it very frustrating for outsiders trying to understand. But we all have different values. Uh, I have a friend in Moldova, and to, to them, he was telling me, the good life is that you get a fruit tree on a small plot of land, two or three acres, and uh, that land is kind of in the countryside, but all around you are other people living a similar life and there's this little community um, and they're all living a peaceful country house growing their own fruit. Uh, in South Korea where Kim and I lived for a couple of years the dream was a condo uh, kind of the opposite of land and fruit trees. Uh, it was to live the, the fancy technological life. America was classically described as having a white picket fence dream um, none of these dreams, the values, the goals, line up with Israel. Israel's goal was some sandy dirt to call their own. They had no rolling hills. They, they just wanted peace and space. So what do you work towards? Uh, what's the foundation? What's the goal for you? If we know where we're coming from and where we tend to go, uh, we can start to project project an accurate course um, like when you're bowling if you know the ball always when you throw it it lands left of center and then it tends to curl right you can start to figure out how to strike the pins um, but if you're giving advice to someone who throws opposite of you you're, you're going to guide them wrong same with culture and language and stories uh, if we can know where they're coming from and where they tend to go, we can attempt to end at the same place if we try. But if we don't know their cultural landmarks, their methods, their blind spots, their assumptions, their values, if we don't get that they're different than ours, we'll make wrong turns all the time. So I'm going to talk a little bit about what we assume. I think we're predisposed, we're trained to think scientifically here in Canada. That existence is measurable, it's experienced, it's personal, it's a narrative, and the goal is freedom and autonomy, that you can do what you want. Uh, and I think that's a pretty accurate description of Canadian culture and values. What do you think? But Israel, uh, they, they thought functionally. Uh, the whole ancient Near East culture, uh, existence to them, 
was when things worked, when they were organized. Nothing was described. Israel and the whole ancient Near East culture, uh, they saw existence was things when they worked, when they functioned, when they were organized. They were functional, not scientific. It was uh, more practical. Nothingness in their society was described not as a vacuum, but as a desert or as the ocean. It was useless. What do you do with the desert? What do you do with the ocean if you can't sail? Maybe there's some good stuff near the shore, but out there, that's just where chaos happens, where storms come from. That's death. That's nothingness. Um, and we have very scientific language for all those things, and we think that strikes us strange. But we, we were personal and narrative, and we desired freedom. They were corporate and poetic. And their goal for society wasn't individual autonomy, but that it was ordered and safe. Uh, they had this word shalom. It meant absent of bad stuff, but it also meant full of good. So when Moses says uh, in Deuteronomy, listen, Israel, the Lord is God, the Lord alone, and you should love the Lord your God with all your lavav, nefesh, and gadol. Uh, you hear me mumble on some weird syllables, but those are Hebrew words, and when they hear lavav, they think, mind, inner life, and affections. Um, but that's their word for heart. Love God with all your heart. But they hear mind. My mind is in my heart. My inner life is in my heart. My affections, my passions, my motivations, those are in my heart. And then they heard, love God with all your nephish, with your very life, with your breath, with your your soul, with your whole being. It wasn't this disembodied, everlasting spirit thing. It was, it was the flesh and blood. Their soul had hands and it had eyelashes. That was their soul. And when it said, love God with all your gadol, we say strength. Uh, but they heard bigness with power, with greatness, with gusto. So we hear we should love God with our heart, whatever that is, because soul is the next one. And these two contrasted seem synonymous. And then it says we should love God with our strength, which I think means you either try really hard or you need to be really good at it, to be strong at it. Um, which isn't, it's not bad to love God with your heart, soul, and strength, but I don't know if it nails the Jewish idea on the head don't really know if I have better words for us, but we're beginning to see maybe the, the differences in culture and values. So this begs some questions, and I want to hear your thoughts on these, uh, and whatever questions this spawns in your mind. But where, where is your mind? What goes to heaven when we die? What has Jesus redeemed right now, and what hasn't he? I, I think we all understand he hasn't redeemed our bodies yet. We still have sickness. We still die. Our bodies wear out. Uh, but he has saved something. What's he saved? That's a, that's a whole field of study. It's a wonderful thing to ponder on and allow God to speak to your heart. Hmm. 
So Deuteronomy 6, 5. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Now, Mark 12, 30 or 33. Some translations have different verse numbers there. I don't know why. Uh, but Jesus is saying here, And you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Jesus adds mind here, which is consistent with the idea. But man, does it muddy the waters even more. Because Jews heard heart and they thought about their mind. Their heart is what does their thinking. I hear soul, and I think, oh yeah, that's my mind, will, and emotions. And my heart, maybe that's my, my feelings, maybe that's my spirit. I, hmm, muddy. And then Jesus adds mind to the list as if it differentiates something. Hmm. Now, to further muddy the waters, Jesus, he was a Jew in the first century. Easy enough. Uh, he spoke Hebrew for religious things. He spoke Aramaic, the people's language. And he, he spoke Greek, probably, the international language. He often quotes the Greek translation of the Old Testament a lot. It, it was a more accurate and accessible copy than Hebrew copies of the time. And he probably maybe spoke Latin, too. Latin was the language of government. And Jesus, being a fairly well-trained, educated individual, probably spoke Latin as well. Now, Mark, Peter's disciple, he's writing this letter, Mark 12, 30, where we were discussing that Jesus adds mind. He's Peter's disciple, writing a letter to first century people, telling them about Jesus. And by the things Mark seems to value in his writing, he seems to be appealing to a non-Jewish mind. So Mark is writing to non-Jews, maybe Greeks, maybe Romans. Um, and he's writing in Greek. What, what language did Jesus say this in? We don't know. What language did Peter tell Mark this story in? Was Mark and Peter more comfortable discussing things in Greek or in Aramaic? And then Mark would translate to Greek? We don't know. We are confident that God communicated all he intended to in Scripture. It's not flawed, but it's not a simple, easy thing to plumb the depths of. Uh, scripture is accessible on the surface, but it's not as though you can read it once and say, oh yeah, I understand all that now. There, there is so much more to be rooted out and nuanced. So this word heart in Mark 12 uh, the Hebrew one is lavav. Uh, the Greek word is cardia, like cardiac arrest. Uh, and I think we get that. It's the They're describing the organ in your chest that pumps the blood. But the uh, my Bible dictionary said that this word means to become intelligent, is to have heart. Uh, it's the mind. It's the chest. It's conscience. Uh, right now, close your eyes and just listen. Where, where are you in your body? Do you envision yourself in your chest? Uh, sometimes scripture describes people's existence in their, in their gut when you feel unwell, uh, when you're nervous. Um, are you between your ears? 
Are you in your heart? Where are you? Where is the center of your person? My dictionary went on to say that your heart is your entire inner life. It's, it's kind of a catch-all for your thoughts and all of those inner things. Now, the word soul. Uh, Hebrew, the word is nephesh. In Greek, it's psyche, which I think we kind of have this vague idea of what a psyche is. Uh, it's, it's mind stuff, right? Uh, now, nephesh, it, it's the word for throat, basically. It's not often meaning that, but that was kind of the first idea when it was first used. And it went on to have a, a very broad definition of it, that it could also mean breath and life and desire. Um, but soul, it's this very physical thing in Hebrew. And psyche, it's this very cognitive outside thing. But when we speak to each other, we talk to each other's heads, right? So interesting. Uh, Genesis 9, 5, uh, God says that your lifeblood will be required of you uh, for killing things. Uh, but this word lifeblood is nephesh, soul, or throat, or life, or desire. Hmm. What does this idea, this word nephesh, what, what idea is it trying to communicate? Because I don't know if we have one word that just equals that. Hmm. This word in scripture, it almost always means a physical part of us, though. Uh, Reuben, he defended Joseph, and he said, don't strike his nephesh, throw him in a pit instead, and he saved his life by doing so. But it was Reuben saying, don't strike his uh, non-physical immortal being. I, no, I think he's talking about his neck. Don't, don't kill him. Uh, we also, in English, talk about people on a ship as souls. There are so many souls on board. Are they necks on the line? Maybe, because we wouldn't be that worried about a ship sinking and losing souls if they weren't lost, if they just lived on forever. Well, they didn't we didn't lose them. They just changed where they were. But people dying is a problem. So I think even in English, we reveal that a soul is a little bit of a muddied term. To continue to muddy the waters for us here, the Greek word psyche, uh, it's heavily influenced by one of their famous philosophers, Socrates. He said that the soul, or the, the psyche, uh, is the eternal, good, true, and real thing that is imprisoned in the body. This word soul, uh, it's rarely used in the Bible to mean the Greek idea, because the Bible... God didn't imprison our souls and bodies. Our body is a good gift that's a little corrupted, but Jesus is going to redeem it, and we're meant to steward it. So in Mark 12, 30, Jesus quotes Mar Deuteronomy 6. And Mark wrote in Greek and used this word, psyche, for the soul, the life of a person. Did he mean what Socrates said about a soul? That we have a soul? Or that we are a soul, but we have a body? I, I don't think so. That doesn't seem to line up with the rest of Scripture, so I, I have to question that. Apparently, I've often heard that quote, and may, I think I've even said it in a sermon, that we are a soul and have a body. 
that C.S. Lewis said that? Apparently he didn't. Uh, I've now since seen that attributed to Buddha, and it's refuted that C.S. Lewis never said that. Which is good, because I'm beginning to discover it's not true. Biblically, uh, it doesn't divide our soul from body that much. That our life is our body. That if we lose our life, it's, it's because we've lost our body to an extent. And even that doesn't quite nail it on the head, because it's somehow describing me separate from a body. But Jesus is in heaven right now with one. Well, this is still a highly debated idea uh, in biblical smart people. There's this guy, Thornton, who said that those who have learned with Socrates that the soul, or more properly speaking, the spirit, is the essence of man. And Socrates could never suppose that the existence of reality depended on the existence of the instrument, that the soul is reality, and the world as we see it is just incidental and unimportant. Well, that's not the Bible. Creation is sacred, and God made it, and he called it good. Hmm. So there's this kind of Greek philosophy hanging on from Socrates, that the body is bad, and we need to escape this life to be in heaven as a disembodied soul. But I don't see that in scripture. Do you guys? Reality isn't just spiritual. I think spirituality is meant to be involved in physical maybe, but I'm, I'm wrestling this down. Where are you guys on this? It's not unimportant what we do with our body, but it's a waste if we do only physical things and never engage in the spirit. But I think they're meant to be linked. That we don't do sacred things and then do mundane when necessary. That it's that the the physical could be sacred if we would let it. Jesus resurrected and his body came back. He wasn't a ghost or a spirit. That ideal that Socrates thought we should all find. Eternal life is in the flesh and it's on earth. It's just not going to be flawed anymore. And I think we are meant to live that out now that we're supposed to bring heaven on earth to our bodies, to the world around us. Anyway, back to the word study. Uh, you and I aren't very Jewish. I'm trying to learn some Jewish things so I can better understand my Bible. Um, but if we're not careful, it's pretty easy to twist their words to English meanings. We, we won't be with them, and we won't arrive where they meant to. It's that we have diverged paths. We're not just catching up. So I think it's important to understand how they use the word soul. So if we look at the NIV and you were to search how often the, the word soul occurs in our English translation of the Old Testament, it occurs a hundred times. 72 of those times it's used to describe this Hebrew word nephesh. In the other 28, there's some other word. Um, but the word nephesh is used 754 times. In the Old Testament. That, that's a lot more than the 72 that the NIV used. Uh, so envision a Venn diagram that there's a hundred times the word soul shows up and it has uh, an overlap that most of the circle is taken up by the other half of the Venn diagram for nephesh. But nephesh is seven times bigger as a circle, this Hebrew idea word. And this word has a lot of other uses, another 654 uses of a very broad possibility of meaning. It has many English words that can be used to describe it. 
it usually means life. Uh, we have lots of meanings for life in English, too. Like when you say, well, that's, that's my life. I'm going to live my life. Or you tell somebody to get a life. Or not on your life. And we just talk about living things, like plants and animals. So a lot of the time, this word nefesh means life. Uh, a physical, uh, ongoing, special kind of existence that's different than nuts and bolts. It, it has life to it. It has nefesh. Sometimes it means soul. And less frequently, it can be translated in place of first-person pronouns like me and I. And also not very often, but it's a very basic uh, kind of early definition of this word, is that it's the throat. It's unnuanced, but it's linked to all these other meanings. That You kind of are your throat. If you don't have a throat, there's not much of you left. If I lose my finger, I'm still me. If I lose my throat, can, can I continue? Not in the Jewish understanding of uh, autonomy, at least. You are your throat. You are your head. Hmm. Interesting. Now, to muddy the waters more. This word that we have for soul, this word they said was nefesh. Genesis 1 and 2, God said, Let the waters teem with living nefesh. Well, we say fish. With life, with living things. Should, should we say, let the waters teem with souls? Let the land produce souls? Hmm. And then God breathed into man, and they became living nefesh. So you are nefesh, but I don't think it's that idea from Beowulf, from Socrates. It's this disembodied thing, spirit, soul, ghost. It's your life, your body. Deuteronomy has this classic trichotomy, Deuteronomy 6.5, that we love God with all our heart, soul, and strength. And that, that fits so nicely into that nice, neat little box of a trichotomy of man. But it doesn't seem accurate to the idea they want to describe. That we're supposed to love God with our heart, with our mind, with our inner life. We're supposed to love him with our nefesh, that thing that people see where life and death and every day happens, the thing with skin on it, and with our strength, not with our muscles, but with our greatness. The, the Greek translation of the Old Testament uses the word for dynamite here, with, with all your power. Uh, so I think a more accurate idea translation of Deuteronomy 6.5, I'm stealing this a little bit from Bible Project, who knows more than me, but I think I'm on track with them. Love God with your thinking and your feeling. And love God with all your living and breathing and doing. And love him greatly. So, some biblical passages as we continue to wrestle down this idea of nephish. Psalm 23. Uh, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lay down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters, and he restores my nefesh. If we say soul and think of it as like that Greek Beowulf idea, it takes a very spiritual turn, totally unexpected. I totally thought David was talking about the Lord's my shepherd, and I'm his sheep, and he feeds me, and 
gives me water and that gives my body life not my my unseen spirit psalm 42 as the deer pants for waters so my nephesh pants for you my nephesh thirsts for you again i totally expected this illustration to be throat that they're thirsty not our hidden souls uh, kind of a negative example numbers 11 the, the people complained to moses give us meat we used to eat fish for free in egypt melons and garlic etc now our nephesh has dried up they're describing their hunger not their souls in that that greek idea but maybe it's a mixture that they're hungry and their kind of inward being is dissatisfied because of their physical circumstance Isaiah 58:11 The Lord will continue gui continually guide you and satisfy your nephesh and you will become like a spring a well-watered garden and God will look after your nephesh and yet you will be a source to others a source of refreshing that God wants to look after our bodies Jesus promised that he would give us clothes and food and a place to stay that he would watch over us our bodies now before we get too bold I, I feel like we have very clearly seen illustrated how muddy this idea is of this Jewish idea of soul and whether or not that was God's idea of soul I'm still trying to figure out because the Jews weren't perfect they were God's chosen people whom he spoke to in a very special way especially through Moses and at that time but apparently it didn't work because when Jesus came they didn't all follow him so and that was God's plan he wanted Israel to be a priesthood who would bring all the nations into him um, but Jesus kind of had to reset and take a select few so I don't know if the Jewish understanding is God's understanding of soul but before we get too bold uh, I, I would just like to temper our zeal a little bit. I don't know if you guys know who John Calvin is. He was a brilliant pastor and scholar. Uh, brilliant scholar. He would read for his sermons. He would bring his Greek and Hebrew Bibles up to the pulpit and be reading mentally in Greek and Hebrew and then speak his sermon, making his own translation on the fly from Greek and Hebrew. And for his scholarship, he went on and he continually wrote commentaries of the Bible and it expanded from just one book of kind of a, a journal of his thoughts and reflections to write volumes and volumes dozens and dozens of books long of him commenting and explaining scripture and when it came to mark 12 he said about the heart and soul and its difference between he said I don't trouble myself to inquire and later he said, God is not satisfied with the outward appearance of works, of loving him, but chiefly demands the inward feelings that from a good root, good fruits may grow. Well, in conclusion, I'm really glad to have looked into this. Thanks for the suggested topic. Uh, what should we think on next? But to sum up, the Jews thought the soul was maybe more of a body than more of a living thing, not like many of us here explained. The Jews were also much about more, 
much more about function than tidy definitions. Crossover was redundancy, not imprecision. Uh, so before we get too caught up on how their words overlap, uh, it, it's not an error, it's a difference. But let's be keen to wrestle down ideas with God, and maybe hesitant to proclaim them as an absolute truth. I think wrestling can be encouraging and sharing our wrestlings, uh, but cr proclaiming our wrestlings as the way may be more distractful than helpful. So I think Jesus wants to make uh, students of a way of life, not philosophical scholars. Hmm. Some questions to wrestle down and pray. Uh, what happens when God saves us? Uh, we, we have a new heart of flesh. A willing spirit, maybe? Uh, that's some Old Testament language. Are we saved from the body of death in Romans 7, is it? Maybe ask God what he has done in you. What did he already do? And ask him, what does he want to do? Uh, I think sometimes we can speak for him in, in our haste and in our zeal for theology. But what did God do in you? Um, from his perspective and ask him what does he want to do next well thank you so much for joining me i really hope you can come out to our service i'd love to have you we're having a barbecue i hope to see you at the camp 12 o'clock on sundays god bless you and the final step is to rest after reading take a minute to let god work uh you probably don't need to say anything now you've already uh, thought on and read and chewed on and asked him for help and have considered your life and what you're going to do. And it's good to just take maybe a minute in silence and just let God do work. He's going to do stuff in your heart and in your mind. He'll improve your attitude about the day uh, and he'll just set you up for success if you can just sit there with him. Yeah, meditating is this uh, biblical idea of like chewing on and letting something mull over in your mind to kind of soak in this idea. Uh, so you're not trying to get too much into the cultural background or any of those really cool things, which is fine to do, but that's not what this step is, this meditating. Uh, it's listening for God and kind of letting him soak that deeper into the crevices of your heart and life. Step three is respond. It's important that we remember to do something about this. Uh, a probable step is that you pray out of what you've been chewing on and thinking about as you've been reading this passage. What's what's the do coming out of this? Maybe there's some heart attitude that you need to ask God's help to change. Um, but we, we do need to do something out of our reading time, uh, this time with God, these holy moments that we're giving him. And I don't think we can get past asking God for things. There's nothing wrong with asking him for stuff. He has it. We need it. Uh, he wants to give it to us. And I was reading about prayer this week, and uh, Richard Foster said that love loves to be asked for the things they know you need. Uh, it's just another opportunity for relationship. So ask God for help, because he really wants to help you. Uh, but maybe he's not ready to... Uh, force any kind of help on you that he wants to see if you're looking for him.